This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My gender pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Alexander Avina, Associate Professor of Latin American History in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University and author of Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. This is great. Of course. So the big question, what exactly is happening in Venezuela right now? So I think so but if if we step back and look at, I mean, even beginning with with the Cold War in Latin America, right? We we the US has a pretty nefarious reputation in in and role in the history of Latin America. Um, I'm a historian of Mexico, right? So we trace U.S. involvement in Mexico to the the War of, of, of 1846, in which the U.S. takes half of Mexico's land, right? But really, after the Spanish-American War of 1898, the U.S. takes a more aggressive role, uh, an aggressive imperial role in Latin America, uh, intervening in Latin American countries dozens of times up until the 1930s, right? Now, if we can skip forward to, to the, the Cold War, we have um, a series of U.S. interventions in the region. Um, there's been some interesting conversations online and in certain per- per- uh, publications that, that are comparing the current situation in Venezuela to like what happened in Chile in 1973 when you had the, 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 military, the military overthrow of, of, of Marxist President Salvador Allende. But actually, I think it's also interesting to think about what happened in 1954 in Guatemala um, when you had the democrat- democratically elected President Jacobo Arbenz overthrown in the CIA's first successful operation in Latin America. And if you go back and you look at some of the media reels, the media coverage of what was going on in Venezuela prior to that overthrow, um, it's kind of striking. It's the, a lot of similarities to media coverage in the U.S. of what's going on today in Venezuela, um, particularly this whole conversation of, you know, Venezuela's misery is a product of the outcome of, of socialism because socialism always leads to this type of economic and social political catastrophe, which is obviously false. So the way I read this from uh, from a longer historical perspective, it, this is just another example of the U.S. government trying for aggressive regime change and intervention in a Latin American country that's extremely important for the fact that it, one, it's in the process of this longer term Bolivarian revolution, but also because it has the world's largest proven oil reserves, right? And I think if we look at what the Trump administration has done in terms of foreign policy, they seem to be taking a step away from the Middle East or with trying to withdraw from the Middle East, my fear, based on this longer history of, of US intervention in Latin America, is that they're going to re- redirect their foreign policy focus, redirect the gaze of the empire to Latin America, and Venezuela seems to be in the crosshairs for now, right? And I think if you look at the, any of the tweets or the media uh, appearances of people like Marco Rubio, of Mike Pence, of, of Donald Trump himself, right, they're very clear and explicit about why they're doing what they're doing at this moment, why they're trying to um, get rid of, of overthrow Nicolas Maduro, the elected president of Venezuela, to replace him with a guy, Juan Guaido, 
who very few people even in Venezuela knew who, who he was. So to me, I, this is just another, uh, another example of a long line, a long list of US, aggressive US intervention and overthrow of Latin American countries that they don't, uh, governments that they don't like, um, particularly since the Cold War began in the, in the late 40s and early 50s. And obviously, we're not in the Cold War anymore. What exactly is motivating intervention here? And what has the US history of intervention in Latin America been post-Cold War? I think in this situation, Venezuela was in, in, so Venezuela was in the vanguard, I think, in terms of Latin America's resistance to the implementation of, of a neoliberal project in the 1980s, right? So as people like uh, Gio Chicorolomar have written, um, 1989, you have this massacre in, in Caracas uh, because people were protesting the implementation of IMF, uh, Washington consensus type neoliberal economic policies. And so you have this uprising called the Caracaso. The state responds with overwhelming force and violence. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of people were killed. But this was really the first instance of popular rebellion to this Washington consensus neoliberal uh, project that was being implemented throughout Latin America in, beginning in the 1980s. Um, later in, throughout the region in 1994, the, the Zapatistas in Chiapas will, will, will become the second shot, right? Where uh, they'll become famous globally as the, as the prime Latin American example of the anti-neoliberal uh, uh, warriors. But really this begins in Venezuela in 1989. Um, what, what has happened since the end of the Cold War, I mean, I don't, to a certain extent, I, I, the Cold War hasn't ended, right? If you look at a place like Colombia, their domestic politics still take place within a Cold War context of communism versus democracy, um, using that, that Cold War context and framing. I think now uh, Venezuela has assumed the role from a U.S. government perspective that Cuba occupied for a long time, right? They're the they're the dangerous other, they're the dangerous fro in the region of a region that U.S. government officials from John Kerry to, to Marco Rubio and, and Mike Pence refer to as our backyard. Um, I think, but I also think it's connected to more recently to the fact that, that, that there's a strategic calculation going on of withdrawing some U.S. attention and forces from the Middle East and redirecting that to Latin America. And Venezuela, because it's going through this this economic, this horrific economic situation, um, it's seen as a moment where they can push through uh, a form of, of economic, uh, well, well, there is economic warfare being practiced against Venezuela, but also pushing through a, a sort of regime change without the expenditure of too much U.S. Uh, of U.S. resources. Now, I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that this this coup plan is failing. These um, these incidents at the border between Colombia and and, and Venezuela and how the opposition was trying to open the border and to allow so-called humanitarian aid into the country. Um, I think what we see now in terms of U.S. intervention in Venezuela is similar to what they've tried to do in other Latin American countries since the end of the Cold War, right? You're trying to pressure countries from the outside by waging economic warfare, by trying to split, by, by trying to foment social strife in the country in order to achieve a regime change that's favorable to U.S. interests. We saw this in Honduras in 2009, um, for which, you know, Hillary Clinton was, was rightfully castigated during her presidential run. Um, and we've seen it through in, in other countries. Right? Venezuela itself has gone through this early, before, right? In the April 2002 coup attempt in which Chavez was actually briefly detained by certain sectors of the military. You had a very short-lived coup government that was really only recognized by the U.S. government and a massive popular mobilization that went out to the streets forced the coup 
the coup plotters to bring Chavez back into power. So it's a different type of U.S. intervention that I think that has characterized the post-Cold War era, but with, that doesn't necessarily require the type of military adventures that we've seen the U.S. engaging in in, in the Middle East, for instance, since, since 2001. And in the context of communism versus democracy, U.S. interventionists are trying to justify are trying to justify this coup by really honing in on Maduro as an individual, characterizing him as a dictator and socialism as this economic catastrophe. You called Maduro the elected leader of Venezuela. What is the truth about democracy and how the democratic process is functioning right now in Venezuela? Well, that's, that's a key question, right? And a lot of this hinges on whether, whether and who considers Maduro to be a democratically elected president, right? So, because, because in the last round of elections, um, the, the most of the opposition refused to participate in, uh, Maduro won in an electoral process that many have characterized as problematic, as, as, as corrupt. So regardless of that, right, like he's still considered to be the elected president of Venezuela. Right? You, and, and part of the, for me, part of the charade of this whole situation is that you have a little known congressman who cut his teeth, according to some journalists, in the, the violent Guarimba or student uh, protests of, of the late 2000s, uh, announcing himself as the president of Venezuela simply because he was you know, the rotating, he was, it was hit the turn of his political party to assume the presidency of the National Assembly. So, I, I, a lot of, it's interesting to me to follow the debates within the U.S. left in particular about whether, um, you know, preventing or working to prevent or protesting U.S. intervention in Venezuela automatically leads to some sort of de facto support for Maduro. I think that the, the position to take at this point is to categorically reject any sort of U.S. intervention in, in, in Venezuela that attempts to guide what the future of Venezuela is. And, I, and I, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult message, I think, and it's been a difficult idea to, to debate, right? Because as soon as you say something like that, people will come back to you and say, well, you're an apologist from Maduro. But at the same time, how are we going to allow someone like Mike Pence, like Marco Rubio, like Donald Trump, how are we going to put any faith in these people to guide some sort of an elect, a new electoral process in Venezuela? Something that's, that's really struck me as a historian is to see the role of the Venezuelan opposition since the election of Hugo Chavez in the late 1990s, right? And I question whether this opposition, if there's ever been a moment in which this opposition has ever recognized the legitimacy of the Bolivarian revolution in the electoral sense. Have they ever accepted the legitimacy of any election since Chavez won in the late 1990s? Right? Elections that during the 2000s when Chavez was in power were monitored by respected international agencies. And my, my worry is if we, if we get caught up in this question of the legitimacy of Maduro as an elected president, if we get caught up on that, then I think we miss some other broader questions. One is if, let's say, to, to, to go with a hypothetical, if there is some sort of free and fair elections that are, are brought forth as a potential solution to this crisis, right? Maduro steps aside, there's going to be free, supposedly free and fair elections to, to that, 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 that follow. Is that even possible? In this context in Venezuela, in this particular moment of social, and political, and economic strife, is it possible to organize free and fair elections? One. And two, what happens if the, the Chavistas win? Um, will, will the opposition 
recognize the legitimacy of that electoral victory. And recent history dictates that they probably will not, and that they will continue to seek the, the complete rejection and overthrow and destruction of this broader project that we call the Bolivarian Revolution. And lots to dig into there. First off, let's define some of the terms we're using. What exactly is the Bolivarian Revolution? So the, the Bolivarian Revolution is this broader, this longer historical process that depending on, 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 on your position or your view as a historian, uh, begins with the election of Hugo Chavez in the late 1990s, right? And it becomes a project of radically democratically transforming Venezuelan society, the Venezuelan state, the Venezuelan economy. Um, I think as, as Gio Chiquero Lamar and, and Alejandro Velasco aptly and, and brilliantly described in, in your previous podcast, Venezuela was a, was a highly unequal country prior to Chavez winning the presidential elections in the late 1990s, right? Even though, and you hear this a lot in, in, in the U.S. media, right? The wealthiest Latin American economy was brought down because of socialism. The reality is that that wealth that was generated by oil was restricted to a tiny elite, right? So in one way to see the, the election of, of Hugo Chavez in the 1990, late 1990s was... Um, the masses of Venezuela actually came into the political process and they were able to influence it. They were able to imprint, uh, leave their imprint on a, on, on a political process that became much more democratized, right? So the Bolivarian Revolution was defined by, by someone like Chavez as socialism in the 21st century, which is a radical project from below to democratize the economy, to democratize the political system, to expand the franchise to give housing rights, food rights, educational rights to all Venezuelans, not just the tiny white elite that had generally benefited from the, the, the oil wealth that the country had generated throughout the 20th century. There's, now, there's a tension, though, within that Bolivarian revolution, right? There's the Chavistas, the, the, the revolutionary leaders, the elites at the top, who have a particular definition of, of what that, con that project constituted. Um, but there's also the grassroots Chavistas, right? There's a grassroots understanding of what this revolutionary process entailed and was supposed to entail, right? So in, 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 in Gio, in Chicarero Lomar's book, right, the, the title of it, We Created Chavez, right? There was an understanding uh, that the Chavistas at the grassroots created Chavez, not the other way around, right? It was the masses that propelled him to power. Now, and there was always a tension, there was always a back and forth between the grassroots and the leaders of this revolutionary process in terms of where the revolution should go, what courses it should take, how it should reinvest the, the profits from the oil industry, how to reorganize economic production so Venezuela could actually feed itself as a nation, right? That's one of the long, uh, one of the long economic deficiencies in the history of Venezuela, the fact that it can't feed itself as a country. The countryside tends to be abandoned. There's very little agricultural production. Um, so it has to import its food from abroad. Um, so to me, the way I think about the Bolivarian Revolution, it's this revolutionary project that for a while had a very creative, uh, radical uh, tension, but also conversation and dialogue between revolutionary leaders like Chavez and these radi radicalized grassroots sectors that believed in him and that believed in the project. And at every stage of this project in which the right wing or the opposition tried to, uh, to stop that project, to overthrow the project, that radicalized the grassroots even more. And, and that's where the, and I think this is something that's missing in a lot of the U.S. media coverage of, of Venezuela, right? You have people who may, who 
are disaffected with Maduro. But that doesn't, that doesn't negate the fact that they're still Chavistas to a certain extent, that they still believe in this revolutionary project. Um, and I think that's been something difficult for a lot of the media coverage to, to, for a variety of reasons, to, to capture. You mentioned earlier the opposition recognizing or not recognizing elections. I think a really interesting dynamic is that the opposition claimed that Chavez was illegitimate because of fraudulent elections. They claim Nicolas Maduro is illegitimate because of fraudulent elections, but they claim that they are legitimate because they have won elections. What is the cognitive dissonance here? Why does the opposition, what grants them legitimacy in the National Assembly, but literally none of the other elections in which they didn't win? I don't know. I think that's, that is a, a, an essential question in this moment that um, I, I don't have an answer to, right? I think what your, your question exposes uh, the, the hypocrisy, right, in that position that's been advocated by the opposition. But I think we also have to remember that the opposition is, is, is not a monolithic institution or group of people, right? There's, there's cleavages within the opposition. Indeed, one of the main issues of the, of the opposition throughout this, this period of the late 1990s to today is the fact that they've rarely been able to unify, right? You have um, an opposition that's rooted in, in the two traditional political parties that, have, that ruled Venezuela since the late 1950s, and then you have uh, more aggressive, revanchist right-wing groups like Popular Will, the one that Guaido represents or comes from. Um, so they've had their differences over, over political strategy, political approach. Um, but fundamentally, I think what it comes, I think your question captures this, 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 I don't even want, I don't even know, I don't even know if hypocrisy is the correct word, right? But there is this cognitive dissonance in terms of how do they achieve power? Um, we're going to achieve power through the very mechanism or the very process that we've always deemed illegitimate. I think it's something problematic and I think it's something that, that for a long time the vast majority of Venezuelans recognized the, 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 the dissonance there. But it, it, again, but if you go back to the 2002 coup of April 2002 and then the oil strike of 2002-2003 or the, the, the street violence that happened after the 2006-2007 election, the, the Guarimbas of 2014 or 2017, right? What I see is an opposition that's almost always not united, desperately trying to find extra constitutional and sometimes constitutional means to take political power and and and, and dictate um, whether we sh they should get rid completely of the Bolivarian Revolution or whether they can work within the confines and and not take away things that most Venezuelans have, be, have uh, are accustomed to and, and tend to think were positives from from the, the high point of the Bolivarian Revolution in the 2000s when, when oil prices were high. Uh, it's just, to me, it's really interesting. And, and it's, uh, I think that the, the focus now in this moment about who's leg legitimately elected and who is not legitimately elected, it also works for an international audience. And it works, and it's work, it's directed to some, an entity like the United States that can use that argument internationally and say, look, we have a, a dictator an illegitimate dictator in Venezuela, therefore we have to do something at this particular moment to get rid of him and then put into power a guy who, again, was little known in even in Venezuela and now is going around the country proclaiming himself to be the president of Venezuela. And it's interesting, uh, 
you're talking about how the opposition isn't necessarily united. If you look at the opposition, something interesting is that they don't necessarily have a super clear platform or sense of what they stand for because they are an opposition coalition. So there's a lot of different things they stand for. But Juan Guaido is pretty clear on what he stands for and what his policies are. You said that he is part of a more far-right faction of the opposition and that he actually rotated into power rather than simply being, uh, you know, the overall elected national National Assembly leader. Who exactly is Juan Guaido and what, what does he stand for and why have Western governments been so quick to align themselves with him? I think he's... I mean, one, it's, there's been an ongoing, uh, I think it's from the U.S., there's been an ongoing attempt to diffuse or to stop this revolutionary project for, for decades now, right? So um, it's, that's what partly explains like, the type of economic warfare that's being waged against the country. But then you have someone like Juan Guaido, who's, who's, who's young, who's telegenic, who's talking about, who's, uh, talking about things like democracy in a way that's so uh, amorphous and undefined that it appeals to someone like Donald Trump who can actually, um, who can go along with, with, with those goals, right? But I think if, if you've read any of the media coverage, a little bit of the media coverage of what this guy's economic project entails, it's, it's something that we've seen in Latin America. It's something that would take Venezuela back to pre-Chavez days, which is the re-implementation of a really savage form of, of neoliberal capitalism, right? It would he's advocating for economic policies um, that generated the Caracaso, this urban rebellion in, in Venezuela in 1989. So in, in a way, he's, he's trying to move history back in Venezuela by advocating these ruthless revanchist forms of economic, economic project that we generally define as, as neoliberalism. Um, if, if we stretch this out and look at the broader context of Latin America, right? Venezuela was also on the vanguard of this thing that we call the pink tide, right? So, um, a series of, of center-left governments that were elected into power um, in the 2000s, right? And helped by high prices for commodities. Um, a lot of these ex, ex-guerrilla fighters or ex-leftists or left, still leftists turned uh, president throughout Latin America managed to do some really exciting creative things in the region. Uh, from the late 90s up until maybe 10, 2010, 2012, right? They reduced poverty rates. They increased access to healthcare. They expanded the, uh, the, the franchise in their countries. Um, now, a lot of this was driven by, by this commodity boom by China. Uh, a lot of this project was funded by really dangerous and, and, and ecologically harmful extractive industries, right? So this, this pink tide was not perfect. But it lo- when you contextualize this pink tide moment within the longer history of Latin America, it seemed like this was a moment where these countries were trying to achieve some sort of economic, social, and political democracy. And Venezuela was, was on the vanguard of that. What Juan Guaido to me represents is, is a move backwards, a move away from that, a move to the type of economic policies that were implemented in the region in the 1980s that produced the conditions for the pink tide to emerge and to begin with, right? The Washington Consensus, this economic project that called for fiscal discipline, for deregulation, for privatization of state industries, basically for the free reign of capital in, in these Latin American countries. And to me, Juan, Juan Guaido is a throwback to that. He might have a, 
uh, a style that's more social media oriented based on on his generation. But to me, the economic project that he's briefly described in some interviews is really similar to to the stuff that we've been critiquing as, as well, some historians of Latin America have been critiquing since it was first implemented in 1973 in a place like Chile, right? after the overthrow of Allende, and you have General Augusto Pinochet, he's got his Chicago boys, his Chilean economists who had been trained at the University of Chicago under the, the, the leadership of people like Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and, and Arnold Harbinger. And, and their whole thing was about the deregulation, privatization, and the free reign of capital um, in, in their particular countries. And I think he's really a throwback to that. Right now in Brazil, we have a finance minister who is one of those uh, Chicago boys. So in, in many ways, if we look at Juan Guaido within the broader context of Latin America, it's the broader Latin American revanchist right as part of a counter-revolutionary movement that's trying to undo everything that the pink tide accomplished in the early 2000s. And so you've started digging into this already, but we're talking a lot about neoliberalism, socialism, capitalism. What were the actual economic and democratic impacts of the Bolivarian revolution? And why is it that even with the pink tide, Venezuela is in economic crisis right now? Let me start by, by saying this, right? One of the, the most common tropes that we, that we hear in the U.S. media about Venezuela is that it's, it's an example of socialism um, gone amok because this is what, you know, socialism as a project, it has this, these internal defects that are always going to lead to the type of economic situation that Venezuela is in today, right? But something to understand about the Bolivarian Revolution and what Venezuela looks like today, right, is that um, something like half, you know, 50 to 70% of of the economy is still in the hands of private industry, private, private hands. And so when you hear, uh, and I think Alejandro Velasco made this really clear in a, in a recent New York Times op-ed or, or one of the op-eds or, or one of the podcasts that I've listened to on, where he says, anyone who's making that argument is not a serious person because that is completely disconnected from reality on the ground in Venezuela. If anything, um, and it, you can make the polemical argument that there wasn't enough socialism in Venezuela during the 2000s, right? One of the things that the high oil prices enabled Venezuela and Chavez to do during the 2000s, it allowed them to kind of paper over some of the class conflicts or offset, push toward the future some of the class conflict between who actually owned the productive entities in the country and who didn't, right? So if, if, you're, if everyone's getting money from, from, from these uh, windfall oil profits, well, that kind of papered over some of the class conflict that tends to always occur in revolutionary processes. Now, what happens when those oil, when those windfall profits stop? And the money that comes in is no longer coming in to fund um, some of that, the, the, the educational missions that were misiones that were established in, in poor urban areas or the health clinics that were established in, in, in poor urban areas. Um, well, that, that brings some of that conflict, class conflict to the fore. Before the Bolivarian Revolution, something like between 70 to 80% of the population lived in poverty, right? And, and, and this is a statistic that you'll see um, cited a lot in some of the, the press coverage is that, you know, Ch under Chavez, they did manage to half poverty rates, particularly extreme poverty rates. Um, now, some of this has been undone by, by the economic situation that the country has found itself since about 2013, 2014, right? But they, the Bolivarian Revolution did take millions of people out of poverty. It gave millions of people access to health uh, resources, to health clinics. It gave millions of people access to education. It gave millions of people a strong political voice in the life of their country. 
and and this is this is something that that's again starts to spread a, depending on 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 national context. This is something that generally happens throughout most of these countries that that were part of the pink time. There's few exceptions, right? Colombia didn't go that route. Uh, the country that I study, Mexico, didn't go that route. If anything, in Mexico, you had uh, right wingers ruling at the same time that you had this Bolivarian revolution going on in Venezuela. But the economic situation now um, in Venezuela is. It's both short term and long term, right? And I think Venezuela experts have, have done a really good job of, of showing this, um, especially someone like the economist Mark Weisbrot. You have long term structural deficiencies in the way that the Venezuelan economy is structured, right? The fact that its agricultural sector is underutilized and the country doesn't produce enough food for it to eat because most people beginning in the 70s, if I remember correctly, started to move to the urban center. So you have these huge cities and you have a depopulated countryside that can't produce enough food. Now, that there were attempts under Chavez to, to, to rectify that, right? But, but there wasn't much incentive when you had so much money coming in from, from, from oil. Um, so that's like a longer uh, structural deficiency in the Venezuelan economy. The more short-term reasons, obviously, the one that people continually cite is the fall in oil prices, but also uh, this crazy tiered currency system um, that prompted and encouraged uh, high levels of corruption with people who had access to dollars, right? And that's why there is, high, there is corruption uh, in Maduro's government. That's, that's undeniable. There is corruption within the Venezuelan military. There's, there are dissident Chavistas who have consistently pointed this out, and some of them are, have been imprisoned or persecuted by the Maduro government. Um, so it's a, it's a combination of these longer, uh, uh, these longer issues of, a, of an economy that was structured mainly around the production of oil, um, and also more short, short-term issues that deal with the pro- international price of oil and this, this currency system um, that's multi-tiered and it encourages corruption. If anything, again, if, you, if, if anyone is making the argument that it's the fault of socialism for the for Venezuela situation today is just not a serious person. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And what impact have sanctions had and what exactly have sanctions entailed from the U.S. and other countries? I mean, this is a form of, of economic warfare, right? So Venezuela's inability to, because they're, Venezuela's inability to get, uh, with few exceptions, but it, it, inability to get credit, for instance, 
from from pri- from many private banks or or some of these international lending agencies, right? Be- due to some of these economic sanctions, right? Their their uh, their ability to get credit or or capital is limited to a few countries um, that they consider to be allies. But even then, right? There's uh, certain segments within the Russian uh, financial network, right? Know that if they provide the credit to Cuba, that they may force some sort of sanction or or uh, expulsion actually from the international financial networks because of the sanctions that are being levied against Venezuela, right? I mean, but this has ha- been happening at least since, since. I mean, I remember think, I remember when the Obama administration labeled um, Venezuela in 2013, 2014, a national security threat, right? And that then kicks in a series of sanctions as well. But it's interesting when you think about how uh, people like Marco Rubio, for instance, is, is down there at the border of Colombia and Venezuela saying, look, let the humanitarian aid in. We're, we, we're here with 10, 20 million dollars of aid. Yeah, but your ec- broader economic sanctions are preventing 40, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars to actually get into the country, right? It's a charade. It's a sham. Um, these economic sanctions are, are a form of warfare that will not target the leadership, will not target Maduro, but will cause massive suffering amongst the masses of Venezuelans. You brought up humanitarian aid. The U.S. right now, across the political spectrum, from Marco Rubio to John Bolton to Bernie Sanders is accusing the Maduro quote-unquote regime of rejecting humanitarian aid and starving the people of Venezuela. Um, The Venezuelan government rejects this. Um, They reject accusations that they've set aid on fire and responded to aid with violence. What is the truth of humanitarian aid? I mean, this is, uh, this is a, an interesting question too, right? I mean, I think there's, from what I've read online, there's, there is some evidence or there's some suggestion that like some of the burning of the aid trucks was actually done by the opposition on the Colombian side of the border. Um, but we, we, we need to do a bit more research to confirm that. Um, no, I mean, I think just this, it's ridiculous. This idea that, that you're going to go into the country, you're going to help with $10 million of aid, and that's somehow going to alleviate the suffering in the country, but at the same time, you're trying to take over Sitgo, or you're trying to prevent um, the Maduro government from accessing Venezuela's gold reserves in London. I mean, that, that's a hypocrisy. That's that, it's it reveals that this is just performative, right? They're they're trying to make the Maduro government look dictatorial, authoritarian in the international arena, so you can bring uh, actors like the EU. You can bring uh, actors like the Group of Lima or the OA, American Organization of American States into line to force through this, this, this regime change and to force through uh, the, the ascendancy of Juan Guaido into power. That, that's, I mean, it's, to me, it's ridiculous that they're sitting there at the border with, with uh, U.S. Air Force or U.S. Uh, C-47 saying, we're here with, with aid. Why don't you let us into the country? Um, when the economic blockade and the economic sanctions are, 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 are waging massive economic warfare and causing mass social suffering in Venezuela. You've alluded to strong racial dynamics here. What exactly are the racial dynamics at play here? And how does that fit into the context of Latin American history? I mean, it's, it, there, is, there, there, is a, there is a marked... Uh, racial divide or difference between the the masses in Venezuela, if you want to look at the peasants and the workers, with with this the, the sort of Venezuelan elites that 
that have access to international media outlets um, or who reside in in Miami, right? Miami is <laughs> Miami is. I, I used to teach at Florida State University's university, and I would most many of my students were Cuban American or even Venezuelan Americans, and I would tell them straight up that Miami is the the Latin American capital of right wing exiles, right? And and, and and there's no it's no accident that that someone like Marco Rubio is spearheading this effort in Venezuela, right? From Florida, from that home base uh, of of extremely right wing. Latin American exiles, the Venezuelans that, that live in the U.S. tend to be wealthier. They tend to be whiter. And that, you know, it reflects some of the racial and class divides that exist in Venezuela that tend to be extended throughout most of the region, right? And that has to do with, I mean, we could, we could spend another hour talking about the history of Latin America, of colonialism, and, and how Latin America came into being as an independent region in the 1820s, and, and how, um, the white descendants of, of the Spanish colonizers are the ones who in many cases took power in, in these newly independent Latin American countries, right? So the, there is a marked racialized and gendered class difference between the people, the Venezuelans who we see represented on international media outlets and, and the people on the ground in Venezuela. A talking point that's very interesting to me among politicians who oppose intervention is that they specifically oppose military intervention. But looking at history, that's not really a thing the U.S. commonly does in Latin America. Most of the vast majority of regime change efforts have not included the U.S. military literally going into the country and overthrowing the existing government. Why, why is this kind of the talking point among, you know, the Bernie Sanders of anti-interventionists and what is the history of this? I mean, I think it's, it's particularly coming from Bernie Sanders. It's a weasel position, I think. I mean, I think, I'm trying to think of the last U.S. interventions in Latin America where it's a direct military intervention, right? We have uh, Panama in the late 80s. We have Grenada in the early 80s. And before that, we have the invasion of the Dominican Republic in, in the mid-1960s with, with tens of thousands of U.S. Marines. But, but you're right, particularly after, particularly after the Bay of Pigs failed invasion of, of, of Cuba in, in April of 1961, if I remember correctly. But also really beginning with the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954, right? The U.S. has led, has managed to contribute to, usually it's not even direct, right? But contribute to the overthrow of regimes that it did not like, primarily through clandestine operations. It's, it's, it's a form of interventionism on the cheap. But at the same time, it also allows them plausible deniability, right? Because the U.S. is going to look terrible internationally if they're, you know, sending in Marines to overthrow a democratically elected president like Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 54, um, or, you know, Salvador Allende in Chile in 1970. There's really interesting declassified doc U.S. government documents. Um, around Allende in Chile in the early 1970s, where uh, people like Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, and other national security figures make that argument. They say, look, we know that if we intervene militarily in Chile, it will make us look bad globally because they actually did democratically elect this man, right? But then we also have this, this you know, we also have a quote by Henry Kissinger that to the effect where he says, you know, why should we let a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its people? And so there's that tension, right? So how do you achieve um, a favorable economic, uh, how do you achieve a, a favorable regime change uh, with minimal political 
economic and military expenditure. Well, you have clandestine ways of doing it. You mobilize economic agencies on the international level to to not provide credit, to not provide lending, to not provide economic assistance to countries like Venezuela. You know, during the, the during the during the U.S. plotting against Allende in Chile, there was even a plan floated by Nixon in which he said he suggested dumping. Um, the U.S.'s copper reserves onto the international markets to bring down the global price of copper, which would then hurt Chile economically because that was Chile's prime commodity in the international market. Um, so economic warfare, waging economic warfare through a variety of different means is one of these ways that you can achieve favorable uh, economic regime change without you know, putting yourself out there internationally, publicly as having produced this change. Um, so and we see this. We see that we saw this against Chile. We saw this against the Sandinistas or the, the Sandinista revolutionaries in Nicaragua during the 1980s and 90s. You know, part of the part of the purpose of these economic, part of the purpose of these economic, uh, this economic warfare is to punish the people living in those countries and essentially pushing them to the recognition that if we continue to support these governments that the U.S. government doesn't support, then we're going to continue to suffer economically. And that's what happened in, 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 in a place like Nicaragua um, during, the, during the 1980s and when they, they hold uh, elections in 1990 and they voted out of power. People voted not necessarily against the Sandinistas, but they voted for an end of a covert U.S. war that involved economic warfare, that involved the mining of Managua Harbor, that involved the financing of these uh, death squads called the Contras, right? Who rarely ever engaged the Sandinista army in full combat but were excellent in, in attacking and raping and killing uh, innocent women and children in the Nicaraguan countryside. It's, it's, part of it is also trying to abide by this, this, this image, right, that the U.S. is the leading democracy in the world and they, they would never do, that they, that they would not engage in this sort of behavior. But from a Latin American perspective, what we see is a ruthless empire that's willing to do um, uh, uh, terrible things like the financing of death squads to achieve the, the type of results that they want. So you've definitely been digging into this uh, already, but what exactly have the results been of US-backed regime change? What have these new, clearly capitalist governments actually done to their nations? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that the US intervention tends to lead to terrible results. Right? I mean, we, we have examples from throughout the world that shows that. Um, so if we if we look at a place like uh, like Chile, right? Well, U.S. now now in Chile it's a little different, right? We know that the CIA was was involved to some level, um, to in some way, shape, or form in in fomenting and creating the type of situation that then led the Venezuela the Chilean military to break with Allende and overthrow him, which is I think kind of what they're what they've tried to do in Venezuela and so far has failed, right? Trying to separate the military from from the Maduro government. But what did that result in? It resulted in decades of, of this terrible dictatorship led by, by a nefarious man like Augusto Pinochet. Um, you know, we hear uh, all this talk about these caravans, right? These Central American caravans trying to bully their way into the U.S. Well, why are these people from Central America coming here? Well, because the U.S. turned Central America into one giant death squad region in the 1980s, supporting terrible death squad regimes, terrible militaries that in, in a country like Guatemala, uh, led and organized a genocide of indigenous peoples, right? That's the terminology that a UN-sponsored report used to describe the, the massacre of Mayan communities in the early 1980s, something like 150 to 200,000 people. 
right? So in a place like Central America, they turned it into a death squad area in the 1980s. In the 1990s, they pushed through so-called free trade neoliberal economic policies that impoverished the people even more. And we're surprised when these people are trying to come into this country and we won't allow them in, right? So this whole contemporary debate about uh, Central American asylum seekers, right? They're fleeing situations that were created by U.S. intervention, military and economic in the 1980s and 1990s. So I think it's safe to say, if we look at what Iraq is, is going through right now, um, Afghanistan, we're still there, right? That's, that's more of a colonial occupation, not a war. Um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of an example where a, some sort of U.S. Uh, imperialist intervention has resulted in a positive result for the people of that country. And how are the countries who have experienced U.S. intervention, how are they responding both in terms of the people and the government to what's happening? We've seen some footage of the people in Haiti rallying in support of the Bolivarian revolution. What's going on in other countries who have experienced the history we're talking about? Um, that's a really interesting question. I think, it, I mean, the reactions or the responses um, are, are uh, you know, depend on are really politicized. I'll, I'll say it that way. Like, for instance, so for instance, in Mexico, I think in Mexico, you do have, you have seen some instances of popular manifestations of, uh, uh, or expressions of, of support for, for Venezuela. Um, but at the same time, Venezuela is being used by, particularly in Mexico, by wealthy uh, or political right-wing sectors as a way to hit at the recently elected president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, right? So, I mean, that guy, uh, the guy who's known as AMLO, from the moment, from the first time he ran as president in 2006, was being um, depicted in, in opposition propaganda as another Chavez, a Mexican Chavez, right? So now um, the political opposition to, to AMLO in Mexico is using the case of Venezuela to, to hit him, to say, look, you're just another Maduro in the making, you're a dictator in the making, why aren't you, you know, why, why don't you go with the group of Lima and, and, and condemn Maduro and ask him to step down? Um, while at the popular level and the more leftist sectors in Mexico, there's, 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 there's strong support for, for non-intervention and, and for the protection in the, in the respect of, of Venezuelan sovereignty. Um, but I, that's, that's the case that I know best. I'm trying to think of, of other examples, um, in Latin America. But I, again, I also, something also to keep in mind that I mentioned earlier is that there's, there's a broader right wing shift in Latin America, right? So in a lot of these countries, they have much more immediate concerns. To struggle against in a place like Brazil, right? This with Bolsonaro's recent election, there, you know, people are are having to struggle every day against um, this this fascist and, and 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 him trying to implement some of his fascist policies. Uh, but in the Mexican case, it's been really interesting for me to see how the opposition, particularly the right wing political opposition, uses Venezuela as a way to hit. A, a recently elected president whose popularity ratings are up somewhere in the 80 percentile, in the 80 percent. But yeah, that's, that, that's the case that I can speak of, of, of more, most accurately. I mean, Mexico has been, it, you know, there's, a fa there's supposedly a quote attributed to a Mexican dictator of the early 20th century where he said, you know, poor Mexico so far from God, so close to the United States. And so that's a country that has suffered multiple interventions by the United States. And that's why it has a particular foreign policy that tends to be non-interventionist and tends to respect the, the national sovereignty of other countries. So when the United States is actively and publicly trying to undermine the sovereignty of another country, um, there tends to be 
a popular reaction in Mexico um, against that, against uh, that, that instance and practice of U.S. interventionism. And a quick question, I think a lot of our listeners are asking, what is the Lima Group? My understanding, the Lima Group is a group of, I believe, 14 Latin American countries um, who self-organized into another organization because they could not get the Organization of American States to unify and to unilaterally uh, condemn Maduro and the Maduro government. So the man who was the head of the Organization of American States, the OAS, uh, Luis Almagro, uh, a rabid anti-Chavista, uh, anti-Maduro, uh, at this point activist, right, who's been calling for, for regime change in Venezuela for years, even though he's ostensibly a diplomat, they could never get unanimity within the, the OAS to condemn Venezuela and to call for some sort of regime change. So as, as an as a end around, these right-wing Latin American countries form something called the Lima Group, right? And, and they're the ones who have been the most aggressive in calling for uh, the removal of Maduro from office and the recognition of Juan Guaido as the, as the president of Venezuela. There's other countries that have not gone that route. There's a, a level of Caribbean countries that have not gone that route. Obviously, Cuba has not uh, formed part of the, the Lima Group, and, and Cuba hasn't formed part of the OAS as well. That's, a, that's another story. Mexico and Uruguay uh, have proposed other solutions, right? They've proposed mediation and, and dialogue, and they have refused to go along with, with the proposals of the, the Lima Group, this, this group of uh, mostly right-wing Latin American countries. Why exactly is the political establishment in the U.S. so united, bipartisan, in support of Guaido, and at least even among the interventionists, so uniformly opposed to Maduro and calling for, you know, quote, free and fair elections and for democracy to be implemented in Venezuela? I mean, I think because uh, the U.S. is an empire and the empire is bipartisan. I mean, I think this is simple. If you look at the history of the U.S. and Latin America from a Latin American perspective, the difference between a Democrat and a Republican does not matter. It does not exist. The U.S. empire is bipartisan, right? And I think, you know, it's, it's unsurprising to me that someone like Bill Clinton is going to tweet support for Juan Guaido or Hillary Clinton, right? Like, what is the difference between them and someone like Trump or George W. Bush? There is no difference when it comes to foreign policy because they all work for the interests of the U.S. empire. Um, the more surprising thing is when, is when you see someone like Representative Ilhan Omar, you know, or, or Ro Khan come out and question this, right? Um, I mean, but it, it's, it, it, makes me, it, it makes me really angry, but it's also at the same time, as a historian, not surprising. The fact that we bring back someone like Elliot Abrams, Elliot Abrams, this absolute monster who was coordinating and helping and trying to paper over the atrocities committed by death squad uh, regimes in Central America in the 1980s, and he, and he gets brought back to lead the so-called transition to some democracy in Venezuela. That's the first surprising thing. But the second surprising thing then is when he gets attacked or he gets, you know, his record gets brought up by, by Ilhan Omar or by some U.S. media sources, then you see this bipartisan consensus like rally around him to protect him. No, no, Elliot Abrams is a, is a fine man who, who is misunderstood. He committed some mistakes like when he lied to the Iran-Contra during the Iran-Contra scandal. But other than that, you know, he's, he's a fine diplomat. I think that's a microcosm of, of how uh, Democrats and Republicans rally around 
when it's about issues of empire, when it's about issues of the military, when it's about issues of intervention in other countries, because we're an empire. Whether they want to admit it or not, it's, it's regard, it doesn't matter, right? Like in practice, this is a U.S. empire. And you see it in operation um, when, when both parties come together and, and wholeheartedly agree with some sort of illegal, illegitimate intervention in the affairs of Venezuela. And with all this misinformation out there, how can our listeners truly understand what's happening in Venezuela right now beyond listening to this podcast and hear the voices of the Venezuelan people, not just the white, middle, upper class Venezuelans that the media is highlighting right now? You can pretty much trust that like mainstream media sources in the US are not providing an accurate or a, 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 a good faith representation of what's going on in Venezuela today. Um, you know, for when I follow people, um, I follow scholars online like Alejandro Velasco, like, like, like Gio Chicarero Mar, like Gabriel Hetland, like Naomi Schiller, like Greg Grandin. Um, there's organizations, um, like the CEPR, um, there's, uh, other other scholars like like Mark Weisbrot that that are worth following, right? I think they they will provide more accurate uh, and uh, representation and description of what's actually going on in Venezuela. Um, VenezuelaAnalysis.com has also produced some really interesting stuff, right? But I think in in, in general, um, we can pretty you know having seen uh, having watched this mainstream media, it's uh, it's astounding to me how um, we relive this through every potential intervention, military or covert, right? Like it's interesting how the, this press gets mobilized to, to legitimize horrible, monstrous things that this country's committing in other places. Um, that, that's why I mentioned earlier the, the Guatemala case of 1954. If you go on YouTube and you watch some of the newsreels, I mean, it's, it's, and compare those to some of the newsreels from mainstream media sources today about what's going on in Venezuela. It's, the similarities are striking. Um, so it takes a lot of work to get to sources that are actually describing what's going on in Venezuela. And the people that I mentioned are the, are the ones that, that I tend to follow and, and, and read to see, to, to, to know what's going on in Venezuela. And what, if any, actions can our listeners take to defend democracy and oppose U.S. intervention in Venezuela? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think... I think just trying to cut through all the, the propaganda and the misinformation to get at a more realistic understanding of what's going on in Venezuela is an important first step, right? But I, I also think, um, you know, organizing protests, organizing um, uh, uh, letters of protest to, 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 to the U.S. government, to, to organizations like the Washington Office on Latin America, we just, I just saw this morning that there's a letter going on, you know, criticizing the Washington office on Latin America for, for their misrepresentation of what's going on in, Latin, in Venezuela. Um, so, I mean, I, I think also trying to, to pressure Congress people, um, following and supporting the very few people in Congress who are, are, are taking the right position on this, right? It's really disappointing to see people like, like Bernie Sanders and, and AOC take such weaselly positions on, on Venezuela. Um, but we have seen people like Rokan and, and, uh, and Ilhan Omar take really brave positions, particularly Ilhan Omar after the whole uh, unfair criticism she faced after one tweet. Um, she came out that same week and was on fire when she questioned Elliot Abrams. To me, that was, that was um, heartening to see. Um, but a lot of this has to do with, with trying to push 
and to accomplish uh, and to spread and disseminate a, a, a more factual, realistic understanding of what's going on in Venezuela. And I think a lot of the scholars and the activists that I listed previously, in terms of who I follow, are trying to do that, right? And are breaking through um, some of the, the into some mainstream media sources to, to to make their voices heard. And I think that's really important. But I think the first step is to just try to gain an understanding of what's actually happening in Venezuela and to cut through this propaganda that we're bombarded with day in, day out. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and helping inform our listeners about the truth of what's happening. No, thank you for the invitation. This was fun. I appreciate it. Of course. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast and the brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela. Make sure to subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.